Well, good morning, everybody. I think I speak for all your pastors when I say it does my heart a great deal of good and fills me with joy to see all of you, to see so many of you. Um, I was telling somebody this week, I said, when you are absent, the rest of us feel it. We feel it because when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Or if you injured your hand or you injured some appendage, then you would feel that. You would notice it. And so we notice, not just the pastors, but we all notice when people are absent. And it's a great joy and a great comfort when so many are here. So welcome. And I'm glad to see all of you. We're going to continue in our mini-series on the ordinances last week. David covered baptism, and this week I'll be covering communion. So, but before we get into that, you've probably noticed, um, if you've been here, you've noticed, or if you've watched online, you've noticed how, that we've changed, made some changes to the gathering, how we go about the gathering, the order of service, the things that we do while we're here, and that was intentional. Uh, it was planned and thought out and prayed over, and so we do you notice we do the call to worship, which is generally, historically has been some, some devotional thought, but now is intended to be something more specific where it's a command from the Lord, an invitation to come and worship Him. And then we go from there to the prayer of adoration or praise, where based on the call to worship, we exalt the Lord. We praise his name. We adore him. And then we go from there into, after a song into the reading of the law. And by that, it doesn't necessarily mean the law in the most restrictive sense, but the law in the sense of any commandment that God gives, any moral command that he gives to us. And then we work off of that into our prayer of confession because by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And we confess our sins to the Lord, and then after that we recite that passage from 1 John as the assurance of pardon, to remember and to continually remind ourselves that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we need that reminder over and over and over continually. And then, it, of course, we had the sermon. And then what I'm covering, as I said this week, will be what I consider the crowning gem to all of this, which is the Lord's table. Because it's such a distinct and appointed remembrance of the Lord himself and of what he's done on the cross. So the idea is really to have a, it's to have a, a more robustly biblical, a more comprehensively saturated with truth, and a more, explicitly, a more explicit emphasis on the person and the work of Jesus in every element. Of the gathering, not just, and and I don't think that that a lot of places, and we historically have not treated it that way, not treated the gathering that way. It's just been let's sing some songs and then let's get to the real part, which is the message. But I would encourage everyone to make it a priority to come early and to come at the beginning, so that you can get grace, the grace that the Lord intends to pour out on you from every element of the gathering as we do go through these different things together because I've found it so life-giving in my own personal time, in my time with my family in doing this, and even in the time, the short time that we've been doing it here. And I know that you will as well. 
as we continue on in it. So I want to cover this, the Lord's table. We're going to explore this some. We're going to explore it in three different main points. The first is the background of the table, which is Passover. The second is the institution of the table, the Lord's Supper, by our Lord himself. And then the third is going to be our practice of the table, communion, how we do it here. So let's pray together before we dive into that. Lord, we confess together with your people of old that you are the Lord our God. What an awesome joy and privilege that you would call us your people and that we can call you our God. We wish to be reminded of this today. And as we meditate on this glorious ordinance that you yourself instituted, we pray for an ever-increasing revelation of the Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to see him high and lifted up and seated on the throne. We all need this. More than our daily bread, we need it. We need you to take your words and to bring them to life in the inner ears of our hearts. We pray that you do that today. We thank you for this privilege to worship you, to receive with meekness the engrafted word, and to come to the table later and partake together. Bless our time, and may it be a blessing to you, especially in how we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn in your Bible to Exodus 12 as we look at the background of the table. Probably some of you know this, maybe some of you don't, but the Lord's Supper wasn't just something random that was instituted in the New Testament. It's a thread that runs throughout the whole of the Bible that started very close to the beginning of it here in Exodus 12. I'm going to read through this very quickly because there's a lot of things that I'm trying to get to, so I apologize in advance for that, but let's try to keep up. It says, in Exodus 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, so this is they're in the land of Egypt, they're slaves under the Egyptians during this time, and the Lord has sent Moses already, he's appeared to Moses at the burning bush and said that he's going to send him to deliver his people out from under Pharaoh, and so now we have this, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if a household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. That's the Passover, and then he moves on to institute the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which begins on the same day and continues for seven days. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. That's a Sabbath. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he's a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread." And then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill a Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Why do we do this? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he has passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And I'm not going to read this next section, but that's when it happens. The, they go and do all that the Lord commanded there, and then the Lord comes and he strikes down the firstborn in all the land of Egypt. And there's a great cry. Pharaoh sends them out. <clears throat> and then it says in verse 43, this part's important, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him, brought him into the covenant. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house. You shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep, shall keep it. If a stranger so, shall sojourn with you and would like to keep the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, enter into the covenant. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. Nobody outside the covenant. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Wow, so that was a lot. Okay, but the big takeaways from that there, we, are the elements themselves. There's, a, there's blood in the body of a lamb. Blood in the body of a lamb. There's a male lamb, one year old, without blemish. Kill it, put the blood on the doorposts and on the lentil. And that, that, I have this underlined in my Bible. I love this little passage. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Exodus 12, 13. In addition to that, there was the unleavened bread. No leaven whatsoever. They had to spend all this time in preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread to clean out all the leaven from their houses because leaven was a representation of sin. So they ate unleavened bread. Now all of this, all this, this custom that they did, this meal that they ate, this later became what's called the Seder meal. The Seder meal. And we'll talk about that more. 
in a minute. So it's a statute forever throughout your generations, a remembrance. A remembrance. They were to do this every year in order to remember. And when their children asked them, what does this mean? Why do we do this? Then they have the opportunity to tell them. It was the Lord. It was the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt. And it was only the other notable thing in that last section was that it was only, as I said, to be taken by those who were circumcised and had entered in to the Lord's covenant. Now, so they did that. Flip over to Joshua chapter 5. They did that as they were coming out of the land of Egypt. And then they did it once more the following year, the second year that they were in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness. And then they stopped. And then they stopped. For 38 years after that, they didn't do it. But we come to this section in Joshua when they had just crossed over the Jordan after they had been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They crossed over the Jordan here. And it says in Joshua chapter 5, as soon, verse 1, as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of this place shall be called Gilgal to this day. Go through that passage and mark the word circumcised. It's at least 10 times, I think. It's a key word, important. Verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And then listen to this, wow. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lift, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword, with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now I would bring your attention to the fact that any time somebody drops down to their knees and worships an angel in the scriptures, the angel tells them to get up. Don't worship me. This is not an angel. When he worships him, he says, You're right to do this. Now take off your shoes too, because it's the Lord Jesus. The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus himself. 
So, <clears throat> prior to this account in Joshua, before this, but Moses warned the people before they crossed over. Moses warned the people. You can look this up in Deuteronomy 6 and in Deuteronomy 8. It's repeated both places. And he says, take care lest you forget. He's, giving them, he's reiterating the law to them before they enter into the land. He says, take care lest you forget. Lest you forget what? Not what, but whom. In both places, it says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Not a thing. Take care lest you forget a person, him. And what's interesting is if you look back in Exodus 3, when the Lord appeared to Moses and, and spoke to him the first time, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So he's saying, when I come to them and I say this, and they say, who sent you? Who? We want to know who. And that's the question. That's the most important thing of remembrance is who, the who. But they, it's not just a deliverance, but it's the deliverer. It's not just a historical fact that they were to remember, but a present reality. But they got into a toxic cycle. For those 38 years, they didn't remember God's covenant, which was to bring them into the land, because they didn't keep the Passover. And then they didn't keep the Passover because they didn't remember the covenant. And it, it ends up being this circle, hardened. By unbelief. So they forgot what he did and they doubted what he said he would do. Both symptoms of unbelief. It's the same for us. If we forget what he has done, we tend to doubt what he said he will do. And then if we doubt what he said he will do, then we tend to forget what he has done. We get in that cycle of unbelief again. But the cycle is broken by intentionally remembering. Intentionally remembering. So what did they do here in this passage? After those 38 years, before they entered the land, the key points from that passage. It says, he circumcised all the men who weren't circumcised to, so they could enter into the covenant. They kept the Passover. And then what immediately happened after that? A vision of the Lord Jesus himself. After they said, we're going to remember, we're going to do this, we're going to be obedient to what the Lord's commanded us, we did it. And then the Lord Jesus appears. And Joshua sees him face to face. And then immediately following that, they go into Jericho, they conquer it. That they were so terrified of for all those years. No way we can do this. But they remembered and they obeyed the ordinance that the Lord had instituted and immediately into the land, just as he said. Now flip over to 2 Kings 23. We have a reestablishment of this ordinance, or at least a reestablishment of it in the correct way. This is after Josiah. All this wickedness had happened, all kinds of idolatry and debauchery and abomination the people of Israel had been practicing at the behest of the kings who led them astray. And their own hearts were complicit in it. And then Josiah goes, he repairs the temple. They find the book of the law, which was lost. They completely lost the book of the law. Josiah finds it, reads it, tears his clothes, okay? 
And then he reinstitutes the Passover. In 2 Kings 23, verse 21, it says, And the king commanded all the people, Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. That was a period from the time of the judges until then was a period of 400 years. 400 years, and we don't know exactly what happened during that time. Maybe they kept the Passover intermittently. Maybe they didn't keep it according to the prescriptions that were given in the book of the law because it, it had been lost for some time. Or maybe they didn't keep it at all. Maybe they were long stretches. We don't know exactly, but they didn't keep it every year in the way that it was prescribed in the book of the law and not certainly the way that it was kept here. So, he, so Josiah repairs the temple, the place of worship, discovers the book of the law, reads it, repents with brokenness, renews the covenant before the Lord. I skipped over that part. In chapter 20, the beginning of chapter 23, it talks about how he calls all the people. They renew the covenant. They renew the covenant before the Lord. That's important. The same thing that happened in Joshua. <clears throat> and then after that, subsequent to keeping the Passover, they cleansed, cleansed the temple, destroyed all these idols, all these altars, to honor the Lord. Matthew Henry says of this passage, a close and constant adherence to God's ordinances is the most effectual preservation from the infection of gross sin. The more we taste of the sweetness and feel of the power of holy ordinances, the less inclination we shall have to the forbidden pleasures of sinners' abominable customs. It is the grace of God only that will secure us, and that grace is to be expected only in the use of the means of grace. Nor does God ever leave any to their own heart's lusts till they have first left him and his institutions. It says in Leviticus 18.30, and the King James renders this well, it says, Therefore shall ye keep mine ordinance, that, that ye commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that ye defile not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. Matthew Henry says again, Josiah considered that we must learn to do well and not only cease to do evil, and that the way to keep out all abominable customs is to keep up all instituted ordinances. We have reason to think that during all the remainder of Josiah's reign, religion flourished, and the feasts of the Lord were very carefully observed. But in this Passover, the satisfaction they took in the covenant lately renewed, the reformation in pursuance of it, and the revival of an ordinance of which they had lately found the divine original in the book of the law, and which had long been neglected or carelessly kept, all of that put them into great transports of holy joy. And God was pleased to recompense their zeal in destroying idolatry with uncommon tokens of his presence and favor. All this concurred to make it a distinguished Passover. And that's the Lord's way. So now, let's jump forward many, many years to the Lord's institution of the Last Supper. There's an account of this in each of the Synoptic Gospels. We're going to read it from Luke, chapter 22. You can turn there. It says in Luke, chapter 22... So we're looking here, it, 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Makes the clear, there's already clear connections, which we're about to see, but he makes it explicit there. Christ is the true Passover lamb. And this is how he fulfills it. Luke 22, now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then then Satan enters into Judah, skip down to verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell him the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room, that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. <clears throat> as a side note, it's a, uh, quite a conundrum in th- this account, the three synoptic gospels account, and then John's account of Jesus being crucified, because it says that he ate the Passover with his disciples, and then it says that the following day was, they were pre- was the preparation for the Passover. We don't have time to cover that now. It's fascinating, though. Because the Lord uses, he, he bends uh, the natural laws in such a way in his ingenuity in order to fulfill the Passover, both at the Seder meal and at the crucifixion. See, see me after, if, I'll tell you about it. It's really incredible. I wanted to cover it, I don't have time. Verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired, or the King James says, with desire have I desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So, this is a Passover Seder meal. That they're doing. I've heard people try to say, well, we don't really know if it was a Passover Seder. That is the biggest load of nonsense. It says over and over and over they went to prepare the Passover. And clearly what's happening here, if you, especially when we start to get into this, you attach what he does at this meal with the Passover Seder. Nothing else makes sense. It was most certainly a Passover Seder that they were holding together. And at the Passover Seder, there are two notable elements. There are a lot of elements, but there are two notable elements. The first is called the afikomen. And that word means that which is to come or the coming one. Listen, the, the, the Jews had all of this incredibly, incredibly rich symbolism pointing to Christ. And they were so blinded that they completely missed it. The afikomen, the coming one. There were three pieces of matzah bread to start the Seder meal, and the middle, they were stacked, and then the middle matzah would be taken out at the beginning of the meal and broken in half. The larger half would be wrapped with a white cloth 
and hidden for after the meal. The afikoman is that larger half that was wrapped in the cloth and hidden. So they put that away. They wrapped it in order to signify the wrapping of bread when they departed Egypt in haste. And the lar- it was the larger piece that was wrapped as opposed to the smaller one. They intentionally broke it that way in order to signify that although salvation had come in a measure at Egypt, it would eventually come in full through the Messiah. They just didn't realize that it had come. This is the piece, this larger piece is the piece that was wrapped in the cloth, the afikoman that Jesus took after they'd eaten, and he broke it, and he held up and broke it and said, this, this is my body, which is broken for you. And we know that he was later wrapped in a burial cloth and resurrected in order to achieve that greater salvation which was to come. So that's the bread, and then there was the cup. There were four cups to start the Seder meal. The third cup was called the cup of redemption. That signified the fulfillment of God's promise to redeem his people from the bondage in Egypt. It also signified the blood that they put on the lentil and the two doorposts where the destroyer passed over the Israelites. This is the cup that Jesus took saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. We know that his blood was later poured out to redeem us from the bondage of sin. And by faith, that blood is applied to the lintel and doorposts in our hearts that he might pass over us. And the Lord says to each one of us, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Now, recounting this institution, recounting the institution of this ordinance, Paul indicates in 1 Corinthians 11.25, he says it a little differently. You don't get this in any of the synoptic gospel accounts. As he's recounting the Lord Jesus' words, he says that the Lord said, Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of what? Of who? Me. Of me. Do this in remembrance. Not of this thing, but of a person. Do this in remembrance of me. It's first and foremost a remembrance of the living person, him, just like in Deuteronomy. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. The Lord your God. Because we have this, we have this propensity to get fixated on everything else but Jesus Christ. Even, I'm not talking about illicit things. I'm talking about good and godly things. Principles, statutes, truth. There's a way to study this book and miss the man. The Pharisees did it. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But they are they which testify of me. So it's first and foremost a remembrance of him. Him, the risen Lord. So then he adds. Paul adds after that, when he's quoting the Lord Jesus, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim him. You proclaim Christ. 
not just what he did. Yes, you proclaim his death, but you proclaim Christ. You remember him, you proclaim him and his death. It's both of the things together. It's not just, there's a way to look back at just the historicity of what he did and to detach it from the living person who's seated on the throne right now. But that is what gives life the meditation on and the consideration of him. That's the glory of the veil being torn and having access into the most holy place. Not just that we look back on some historical facts every time that we come to the table, but we look up to a living person, the risen Lord, through the veil. There he is. Amazing. Again, I wish I had time to go through all of the different elements of the Seder meal because there is a lot, a lot more than just that. <clears throat> so much. It's, wor- it's worth studying. It's worth studying the Seder meal and all the practices and then to see how there's so many pictures in that that point to the Lord Jesus. So now we come to the practice of the table. Our practice here, the specific way that we will practice it at Rivertown. The table will be only for baptized believers, as it has been. Recall the repeated emphasis on circumcision before taking the Passover that we read. Over and over and over, they must be circumcised. We're not having a separate rule for foreigners. We're not, they can't even take it. Only the sojourners who come into the covenant can take it. Must be circumcised, must enter into the covenant. No foreigners or hired workers, only sojourners who entered into the covenant. And somebody might say, this seems, seems restrictive or exclusive. Well, it is. It is intentionally exclusive in the sense that there are requirements that must be met just like salvation. You come to the Lord, he's, there are requirements. It's a free gift, but you must surrender all. You come on his terms. You come to him on his terms. You come to the table on his terms. So in one sense, it is exclusive and restrictive. And in another sense, it's free and it's open to all. Whosoever will may come to Christ and whosoever will may come to the table, provided that you meet the requirements. It's open to all in that sense. So it's only for baptized believers. It's only for blameless believers. We've said this before too. And what I mean by that is those who are walking uprightly before the Lord with clean hands and with a pure heart. It means don't come to the table if you're walking in willful sin. It's dangerous to you. And it profanes the name of the Lord. Paul warns about this in 1 Corinthians eleven, twenty-seven through 37 talks about eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Examine yourself before you come so that you know, you know, you know. If there's something that the Lord's convicted you of and you say, I'm not going to do that, that's what it means. Don't come to the table like that. And don't, and don't, part of this, part of the intention is that the table forces you to confront that thing. It forces you to confront that thing that you've been resisting the Lord on willfully. Not just to say, well, I'm just not going to partake in 
then come the next week and I'm not going to partake. And then No, the point is you're confronted with it at the table and then you deal with it and then you come and you partake. So it's for baptized believers, it's for blameless believers, and we're going to be using real unleavened bread, matzah bread, not like the little wafers that we used to use. I hate those things. I don't know about you guys. It doesn't even feel like I'm eating bread. <laughs> it's important, though, that picture. It's, it's important that it, that it has real, it's, it's real. There, there's, there's a spiritual reality to physical things. It communicates it to us. Unleavened bread was used during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. Jesus broke real unleavened bread and gave it to the disciples. And just as physical bread is necessary for the body, so spiritual bread is necessary for the soul. We will be using real diluted wine, not juice, because the Bible doesn't say grape juice. We are going to offer, we're still going to have juice, grape juice, for anybody who abstains from alcohol. We'll have that. But the regular practice is to use wine. Wine was customary at mealtimes during the time that this was instituted by the Lord. Jesus himself calls it the fruit of the vine. It was traditionally mixed with water when they would drink it. But the alcoholic content was still retained, and we know that because in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one it says, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So it was still, they could still get drunk from it if they drink enough. And their drunkenness is elsewhere spoken of and warned against in the Bible. So it was st- it's still, even though they mixed it with wine, it still had alcohol content, and there was still the potential to get drunk if you didn't drink responsibly. Now, there's so much, the symbolism is so rich in the use of actual wine and, and mingled wine. That's what it was called when they would mix water and wine. It was called mingled wine. It's red in the cup, as we know, like blood. Wine was used throughout the scriptures during times of celebration and particularly weddings. Jesus himself turned the water into wine in the wedding at Cana. So it's used during times of celebration, and we celebrate the Lord's death when we come to the table. Wine is given, the psalm says in Psalm 105, is given to gladden the heart of man. Gladness. It's a picture of gladness. It says in Psalm 32, blessed or, blessed or happy, glad is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Glad is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity picture of gladness says in another psalm you have given me more joy than when their new wine and grain abound and then wine carries with it a sting a burn in the mouth due to the alcohol content and that reminds us that christ drank the cup of god's judgment and that the sting of death which is sin might be put away forever by the sacrifice of himself. So it's important. It's, you know, we take things that the Lord says in his word, and, we, and, and because we don't understand them always at first, we try to bend it into a way that we can understand. 
But see, we, we should be bending ourselves to his word and not bending his word to our understanding. He instituted wine for a reason, and we take it and we say, well, we're going to use grape juice, actually. And we do things all, like, all the time we do stuff like that. We don't realize it. We take things that the Lord says and we soften it, or we change it ever so slightly. And it loses something when we do that. He knows what he's doing. And we would do well to come to things like that that offend us or that we don't understand and, and let it change us. How do I need to change to conform to the word of God? Not how can I change the word of God to conform to something that makes sense to me. So it's for baptized believers, blameless believers, real bread, unleavened, real diluted wine. Oh, I almost missed that, that piece. The, the dilution, this is good. This is good. What happened when they pierced Jesus' side? And forthwith came there out blood and water. That's good. So the real wine, and then lastly, and you can come on up, Elijah. We will do it as often as we can, which is weekly. Every time we gather together, we'll do it. As I said, it's like the crown on our gathering time together after we participate in this rich order of service together and we hear the proclamation of the word and then we come and we proclaim the Lord's death and we remember him. We remember. We take care that we do not forget the Lord our God. It puts us in remembrance of Christ himself and his work at the cross. Like I said before, there is a way to remember the work of Christ as a historical fact while forgetting the person of Christ as a present reality. It's the, that's the thing that always slips. It's the conscious presence of God. That's the fear of the Lord. The conscious awareness of his presence. And it's what always slips first. That slips first, and then sin becomes a little more enticing. It becomes a little less of a fearful thing for us. Because we don't sense his presence here, that he's watching, he's with me, he's living on the inside, but I don't feel that, I don't sense it, I've forgotten it, and so it's much easier to transgress his law. It's the most needful thing. That's why prayer is such a necessary component of seeking the Lord, because you can read and you can read and you can satisfy your mind and you can think but you don't get the heart and your spirit involved. And, you're, and you don't draw near, like it says in Hebrews, over and over. Draw near. Draw near. Keep on coming up. And when you lose that, then you lose the conscious awareness of His presence. And so this is intended, as we come to the table, it's intended to bring us into a more conscious awareness of His presence and the fear of the Lord and putting us in remembrance of the Lord Jesus. We remember God's faithfulness and his loving kindness to bring us out of the house of bondage and bring us in to the land flowing with milk and honey. That's a great study as well if you go through Exodus. You go through Exodus and you look at how many times it says, he doesn't just bring them out, he brings them out to bring them in. Out and in, out and in. He brings us out of bondage to bring us into freedom. We rejoice with exaltation in what he has done, we anticipate with hope 
what he will do. And I would remind you of the consequences of looking back to Israel. These things were given for our instruction, it says. The consequence of Israel forgetting the Lord, forgetting him. Every time they forgot him, they went into abject disobedience and then they received the consequences of it. The due recompense of their error. So let us not be like them. We're going to come to the table now.